we have with the glorification of Jesus Christ ushered into our presence and even into our souls and body spiritual blessings that are unmentionable until this time. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus and they're all dependent upon his sacrifice and his glorification. And even what we're talking about, we've already mentioned numerous times, these things could not happen until the glorification of Christ. I'm not going to repeat what I said earlier. We're just going to start. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? That's the crux of the question. Where does it dwell? The answer of Scripture is that the Spirit dwells in our human bodies, making it His home, His dwelling place, His abode. Our bodies, in a sense, or in that sense, are a tabernacle, a tent. The redeemed body of the Christian is portrayed as the temple or as the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. I want to, I have a couple of charts here, and they're a little bit complicated, so I'll read part of them at least. When we look at the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we've already uh, looked to see that the promise, and I think we all would agree that it's rather complex. It's not really real simple. But it was made first by the prophets of the Old Testament, then by Jesus himself, and was fulfilled in the coming of the church of the Lord. The promise has several different elements to it. There was the personal, individual, universal promise of the Spirit of God being given to each believer, believing, an, an indwelling. There's also miraculous elements. We looked at those in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2. Many times the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit will be confused with the internal, unseen indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we've been cautious and careful is to try to point out there's a distinct difference for us to maintain. And I hope we've been successful at that. And so great caution should be taken not to confuse the two. The gift of the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit received by every Christian when they are baptized into Christ is not a baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. There are other passages for us to consider, but that's what we're focusing on now. It is not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enables one to do miracles. It is simply an indwelling where God gives the Christian this gift to seal the believer against the day of judgment. So there's a future aspect to this indwelling that is important to us. Our, internal, our eternal inheritance is to be forever together with God in heaven. That's what we're here for today. That's what we're doing each day of our life is preparing for that promise. There we will be with God and our down payment on this inheritance we're told in Scripture, is the Holy Spirit that is given to every Christian. Where is the Holy Spirit? According to Romans, I'm, I'm going to concentrate on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but I want you to be reminded there are other passages 
that make the same point, if not in the same words. Romans chapter 8, 9 through 11, for instance. First uh, John 3, verse 24. Second Timothy 1, 13 and 14. And as I mentioned before, if you, if you want these charts, I'll make them available and you can ask uh, Grady to, to take care of that for you. But I want us to concentrate on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 13 through 20. And brethren, this is the text that we need to concentrate on. It's the text that we need to look at. It's the text that we need to understand. It is the plainest text that I can think of. Maybe someone else can think of a plainer text, but I can't think of a plainer text that addresses this question. So what we read, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, Meat for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall bring to naught both it and them, but the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us uh, up and will raise up as through his power, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take away from the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Or know ye not that he that is joined to an harlot is one body? For the twain, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Or know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, glorify God therefore in your body. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Well, notice what he says. Your bodies, one body, one flesh, the body, our own body, your body. You, what is he talking about? Our physical body. That's what he's talking about. And there's some questions that we can raise and that we need to raise uh, concerning the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For instance, in this context, what activity is the apostle seeking to stop? Fornication. In verse 13, Paul says, the body is not for fornication. That's not its purpose. Oh, is, it, is it possible? Is it capable? Do, do we violate it? Certainly. What is he trying to do? Teach us, don't be involved in that with our bodies. Okay. Whose body is under consideration then? Your bodies. Who's he speaking to? Christians at Corinth. So he's talking about the bodies of those that are Christians. And we ask the question, is this a physical or a figurative body? It's a physical body. And the fornication he's talking about is physical fornication. What does verse 19 say the, the Holy Spirit is in? In you. In your bodies. What argument does Paul make to convince us that we should not commit fornication with our bodies? Your body 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. Now, I, I want you just to envision for a moment, in, in a personal way. Not, I don't want to be graphic. I just want to, I want us to, to envision in a personal way. Taking the temple of God, where God dwells, and committing the physical act of fornication. Does that not seem egregious to you and vile to you? Isn't that what Paul's saying, don't do? Don't be involved in that. And I just say to you, to change body from its normal meaning, violate rules of exegesis and, and change it from its normal meaning, physical to anything else, is really doing an injustice to the passage itself. And I don't know how we would find any justification for a change in, in this meaning. So where does it dwell? In, in our physical body. Well, someone says, well, there's, there's a passage that tells us um, that, that the, the Holy Spirit dwells in, uh, collectively in the church. And would that be so? Well, yes, in fact, it would. Maybe more than one passage points us to that direction, but let's consider First Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says there, you also, Christians, you also as living stones. I have such a tendency to want to expand there. I will just for a second, and I hope you'll pardon me if we go just a little bit longer in this lesson than preceding ones. But really, what, 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 I want you to envision the establishment of, of the church and the very first Christians. And, and, and Peter says, you, you are living stones. You are stones that live in this building, in this temple. And I don't want you just to envision this room with this many stones in it. I want you to envision it with... Every stone that's ever been placed in that building from the beginning until now. Can you think of the magnificence of the building of the living stones? Now, I'll just say to you, I think the very first living stone that continued as living stones are still in that building. And it'd be a magnificent building for us to see. And we get to be a part of it. Okay, but he says living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So here we find the concept that we are a, a building of living stones, each Christian being a living stone part of that, of that building. And now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I did actually have 1 Peter Two on the chart. First, First Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen, and Paul says. Here, by the way, he says this phrase in chapter six as well. He says, "Know you not? Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, and such are you." So here is a passage that talks about all of us being the temple of God. And that's not a contradiction to say if it's in the spiritual house, it is in the spiritual house. If it's in the 
spiritual individual. There's no contradiction in that for us to, to see that. But I want you to notice he, the, the subject is similar, at least, if not exactly parallel. He says, do not destroy the temple of God. Because if you do, God will destroy you. The temple of God is holy. So we have a responsibility in this spiritual house that we are, as one of the living stones, to individually conduct ourselves in such a way as to not defile the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2. And so then, you are no more strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. You see the same idea in all these passages. Same idea. There is an individual responsibility that goes with being a part of the collective. And, and one point could be at least that one individual can, can defile the temple of God. And remember what he said, if, if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. So we have individual responsibilities to be a holy people. And I hope we've seen that as a theme through the whole Serious is for us to think, what, what, what's the reason for us to think so seriously about this? Is because God's really talking about his holy people being his holy temple. Now, I want to address a point of view. There are those that, that say and advance an argument that says, if we find out how the, whole, how the Father and the Son dwell in us, then we will know how the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And then they say, God is in heaven, Christ is in heaven, and therefore the Holy Spirit must therefore be in heaven. And if in heaven, he cannot be dwelling literally or actually in the body of Christians. I don't know how many of you have heard that argument, but if you've done much study, you've heard that argument. <laughs> I mean, if you've done much research, I should say. You might not come to that conclusion from Scripture, but you would come to that conclusion from uh, you know, research of, of what others have written. And then once having uh, established, and I'll put that in quotes, we've established this, and, and I'll just say I believe it's by assumption, then the assertion is made that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, and let, Christ, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly are both parallel passages. That's Ephesians 3.17 and Colossians 3.16. Asserting that this proves that since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that Christ dwells in us in a representative way through the word that dwells in us richly and thus by extension the Holy Spirit dwells in us representatively through the word. Not literally, but only representatively through the word. Did that confuse you? Well, it does me sometimes too until I think through it. But that's your, that's your argument. I think I've fairly represented it. I've been very careful to try to do that. Well, I'll just tell you, I believe that Christ dwells in our, dwells in our hearts by faith. In fact, I ask you this question. How else would he dwell there? 
Could he be there without faith? We are expressly told that God dwells in us by the means of the Spirit. And that we are a habitation of God through the Spirit. And John affirms that we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he gave us. 1 John 3 verse 24. Ephesians 3.17 affirms that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Not that the faith which dwells in our hearts is Christ dwelling there. Certainly we are justified by faith. Romans 3 verse 25. That does not mean justification equals faith. It means that we must have faith to be justified. And similarly, we must have faith for Christ to dwell in our hearts. But let me suggest that because we learn one means by which Christ dwells in our heart, by, by faith, does not negate all the information that we learn from other passages. We take that information and we use that information properly and we add it to all other information that we find. And so we must eliminate all the information in discovering the truth and, and knowing that we are saved by faith does not negate, for instance, other elements of our salvation. You know, who, who here would argue that we're not saved by faith? What I would say is if you argue we're not saved by faith, we need to do some teaching on that. Okay. Grace. Repentance, baptism, denominational arguments that exclude all other passages except passages like John 3.16 or Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, they make that mistake. And they attempt to use that by saying that there are no other actions necessary. And we say that their argument is invalid for the very same reason. Now I think this next point. In, in contrast to what I, the point I just made, the, the, the presentation I just made, is really, really important to us. I believe that once we discover how the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then we will know how God and Christ dwell in us. That's the reverse of what I just said. Did you all get that? It's the reverse. When we find out how the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then we know how God and Christ dwell in us. The Bible re reveals to us where God dwells in heaven. A variety of passages. The Son has returned to heaven. That's what they would point to. God is in heaven. The scriptures tell us God is in heaven. Uh, Christ returned, Luke 24, verse 51. He returned to heaven. Uh, but then we ask the question so where is the Holy Spirit? We, we, we can establish that, those two. Well, here's what. Here's what Jesus prophesied to his disciples. So if you want to turn, turn with me to these passages. Or listen carefully, I didn't put them on the chart. Here's what Jesus prophesied to his disciples. John 15, verse 26. <clears throat> he said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness to me. Now, what's the first thing he says? I will send the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and he'll have a purpose. Bear witness of me. John 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I, Christ, Jesus, I go away, for if I go not away... The Comforter will not come unto you. 
But if I go, I will send him unto you. That's pretty plain, isn't it? I'm going to go, and I'm going to send him, and he won't come until I go. John 16, 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all truth, for he will, shall not speak from himself, but the things whatsoever he shall hear, these shall he speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. You know what he says? When he is come. John 14, verse 16. This may be the clearest passage. 14, verse 16, beginning, he says, <clears throat> And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Now listen to what he says next. That he may be with you forever. <laughs> Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. You know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you desolate. I come unto you. Now, get that last, last phrase. How did Jesus say he would be with us? Through the Holy Spirit that he sent. I come unto you. How? Through the another comforter. Notice he said the world can't receive this. But those are who his disciples, they receive it. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto you and make our abode with him. How is he going to do that? The same way the Holy Spirit. The same way Christ was, the same way the Father was, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit. So the way Christ and the Father came to make their abode was through the Holy Spirit. And what, did, what was prophesied? He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. But thus he spoke, spake of the Spirit which they that believed on him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Christ or Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember the point we made a few moments ago? We're in a dispensation of time ushered in by the glorification of Jesus Christ himself. If you want to discuss the 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 proposition is sometimes made is that, that the Holy Spirit is back in heaven. I'm not going to take the time to develop that, that, that argument at the moment, but if, if you happen to hold that or want to make that argument or want to just discuss it, I'd be glad to discuss it with you. We'll just not take the time to do that right now. But, but, but the result really is we actually lack a scripture that says the Holy Spirit has returned to heaven. And I just accept what the, uh, is revealed in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit dwells here. That's what all these passages tell us. In the church, in Christians, it doesn't address the question of the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit or any of that kind of thing. Just, it just, this is what those passages tell us about this connection between Christians and their body being the temple of God. 
how does God, the Holy Spirit, dwell in the church, in us? Do God, does, does Christ, does, does the Holy Spirit dwell in us? And, and, and we'll just answer the question. Yes, the, both the Father and the Son dwell in us. And here's where the idea of representation comes. The Father and the Son dwell in us in a representative way, but the representative way is through the Spirit. I'll, I'll raise the question that others might raise, and, and that question is, are there passages that convey more the idea of relationship than, than location? I don't want to misuse passages and say that this one's about location when it's actually about a, a, a relationship. It's about fellowships, that kind of thing. Are, are there passages like that? Yes, there are. Passages like 1 John 3, Ephesians 3, 1 John 4, I think these passages are more concerned with relationship than, than they are location. Uh, Colossians 1, 27, Galatians 2, verse 20, passages such as that. When we get to Ephesians 2, though, when we talk about a build it up for a habitation of God through the Spirit, habitation means location. It's talking about location there. And, and, you know, in whom you've also built it up for a habitation of God in the Spirit. That, you know, that's, that is, is a representative of, of uh, denoting position or instrumentality of the thing. So location, not, not uh, relationship in that passage. Well, how God dwells in the Christian? How does God dwell in, in, in his church? God dwells in the Christian Christ dwells in the Christian, as we've already said, representatively through the Spirit that dwells in us. An, an actual indwelling. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. By this we know that His Spirit, by this we know because His Spirit has been given unto us. So, maybe I can depict it this way. Can you see that chart all right? Representative indwelling. That's, that's sometimes a phrase used that, that the Spirit just dwells in its representative. But there, I think there is a representative indwelling, but it's not the Spirit that does that. It is said the Holy Spirit dwells in the, the believer representatively through the Word. And, and uh, I just asked the question, where's the passage that teaches that? On the other hand, we find that God... Father and Son dwell in the believer representatively through the Holy Spirit. We've I believe we've adequately established that with the passages that, that we've listed in, as well as others. But 1 John 3, 24, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Romans 8, 9 and through 11, 1 John 4 and 4, etc. We might ask, uh, why? Remember I said we ask who, what, where, when, why, that kind of thing. For what purpose? I think that could be almost an exhaustive lesson in itself, meaning in length. <laughs> so we'll just abbreviate by saying to give spiritual power to the servant of God, servants of God. And, and I know that has to do with our unretiring, our, 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 our idea of retiring the Holy Spirit like at the end of the first century when, when confirmation of the Word and revelation of the Word was completed. But I don't believe 
that God just said, I'm, the Holy Spirit just said, I'm done, here it is. There's nothing further. Now, I don't, I don't know uh, how to express all the things that I think. And I'm not trying to hide anything that I think. But let me try to explain it this way. Remember at the end of the last lesson I talked about uh, the, the application of asking the questions about, you know, does our belief allow for, does the scriptures teach us that God is living and active today, that he accomplishes things? I use those very examples that, that I gave then to show that God is still active. And however he works these things out, and, and those more skilled at expression than I am could perhaps do a better job, and there may be uh, many in the audience that could do that yourself. But I want you to think about Ephesians 3, for instance, 16. Beginning that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. Seems to me, brethren, there, there's, there's a, 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 a connection to his indwelling spirit and he's strengthening us, his strengthening us in who we are and what we can accomplish. To, to encourage us, there may be a long list. I, I had a list I was going to use the other night, so I'll just stop because uh, we, have to, we have to draw a line somewhere and how much we'll say. But to encourage us in pureness and holiness. I see this as tantamount, as, as very, being very important. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, remember we read, you, do you not know you are the temple of God, a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man destroy the temple of God... Him God shall destroy. It, is that not a warning? Is it not like a big stop sign that says if you want to do something that's unholy, that will destroy God's temple, stop. There's a warning there. Why? Because the temple of God is holy. And such are ye. Can I advance this idea to you? If you are the temple of God, and that's what the scripture teaches, and you live in unholiness, that God will not dwell in that temple. He will not dwell in that defiled temple. He, what he says here, he'll destroy you. Does that encourage us to think about holiness and to be holy? First Corinthians six eighteen through 20, what, what was it? Flee fornication? There are other sins, he says, are outside the body. He said, that, body, that, that sin right there is against your own body. And why is that so? Because it is the temple of God. The onus is upon us to keep his dwelling place pure and holy. And, and, and if I'm tempted to sin, I mean, God tells us, he gives us help. He, he'll provide the way of escape and allow us to be tempted above that which we're able to bear. Now, I don't know how all that works, but I believe that all that works. And it may be very well connected to the thing we're talking about. But if I'm tempted to commit sin, even the sin of fornication that he's talking about in, in, in our text, should that not 
make me stop and think I do not want to do that which defiles the temple of God. Shouldn't that be a powerful incentive for us to be who we ought to be? Well, what are the results? Scripture tells us that the result of this is that the Holy Spirit seals us. It, it is the, the, he is the mark, the stamp of identification that we belong to God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, we find that the Spirit becomes our guarantee to the redemption of God's own possession. He sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. 5 and verse 5 says, Now he that wrought for us this very thing is God who gave unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Think of down payment. We haven't got it all, but we're on our way. And it's been it's been promised and confirmed, and we can be assured, because it, the Spirit has been given as an earnest, that we belong to God and, and, and our, our, our eternal possession belongs to us because God has guaranteed it. And I'll tell you, if you get a guarantee from God, you can't get a better one. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, You have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom... You also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which the King, New King James says, whom is an earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession unto the praise of His glory. By the way, what does 1 Corinthians 6 say? You are not your own. You belong to God. And Paul says here, what? You are God's possession. You're his possession. And remember the progression we went through a while ago. Heard the word, believed the word, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our down payment to heaven. God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. What, What is our inheritance? Eternal salvation. A home in heaven. A resurrected body that will never die. And being in the presence of God for eternity. Do you want to be in the presence of God? I asked a young man that one time, and he said, no. Got no interest in that. I have to admit, he flabbergasted me with that. I didn't know know what to say to that. What kind of down payment has God made on this promise? The Holy Spirit as an inheritance. Now, let let me say this. No, the seal is not some kind of brand. Those who have the the blessing of God's indwelling spirit are not walking around with a a halo of some kind over their head so everybody knows that's what's there. There's not a brand on them somewhere like uh, one uh, brother suggested that... uh, we needed a, a physical demonstration of that, and it might it would certainly serve to convince him if we had HS stamped on our forehead. But it might mean hot something else, you know, you know a hot shelf or what I don't know. But but in other words, I'm saying it wouldn't satisfy him anyway. No, that's not what happens, and it's not what's going to happen. 
It is a recognition by the Father of those that are His. God is the one who recognizes that indwelling Spirit. We cannot see it. And this I accept by faith because He's revealed it in His Word. You ask me, why, why do you believe in the indwelling Spirit? Because God told me that it's there. I don't have some special feeling or something I can convey to you. I have the knowledge that God has given. What is the result? Helps us to pray. It becomes an intercessor for us. Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according, according to the will of God. And, and, and I just say to you, there, there are some that say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to dwell in you to make intercession for you. And I, and I suppose that would be so. But let me ask you, it's in the context of a passage that talks about the indwelling. So why would I separate it from that concept? And we're told the Holy Spirit is a life giver. Romans 8 verse 11 but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up uh, Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through the spirit which dwelleth in you. And Romans 8 verse 23, And not only so, but ourselves also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for our adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Now, I know you've been waiting all along for me to return to the charts I said I would return to, right? So now's the time. Remember our charts about whatever the Spirit does, the Word does. And remember our premise that these are used to show that the Holy Spirit and the Word, because they do the same things, are the same. The Spirit's the Word, the Word is the Spirit. And remember I said if we can show even one thing that contradicts that, it invalidates the premise. And, and what have we done in the things we've just mentioned? We find in first, uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, the Holy Spirit seals. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, it becomes the earnest of our inheritance. Romans 8, 26 and 27, aids our prayers and makes intercession for us. Where are we told that the word seals us? Or becomes the earnest of our inheritance? Or makes, aids our prayers or makes intercession for us? See, there are three things here that we're told the Holy Spirit does that the Word does not do. It doesn't have to. It only has to if we're trying to make that argument. And so I believe the argument falls in, in that. What is our assurance of the, of the indwelling gift? How can we know or how can one, how can I know 
that the Holy Spirit dwells in me. How can I know that? As we've said, there's, there's not any kind of physical manifestation that's going to confirm that. And I meet people all the time that claim to have the Holy Spirit that, to be frank with you, I doubt if they have the Holy Spirit. And the reason I doubt it is because they have not been obedient to the conditions of the new covenant that causes them to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. How can I know that? I can search out what God tells me to do in order to enter into that covenant relationship with him and have the fellowship of the indwelling spirit of God when I've been obedient to his word. That's how we know. Let me ask you, is that not exactly the same as how we know our sins have been forgiven? Because we know we have been obedient to what God told us to do. And so we, know, he, we have his assurance. He's forgiven us of our sins. Do you have this, uh, you know, this enlightened uh, presence that tells you your sins have been forgiven? Or do you so trust and have faith in God and in his promise that when we do what he tells us, our sins are forgiven? Okay. How do you know your spirit dwells in you? Well, you say, well, we're, 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 you know, we're up and moving and we're animated. <laughs> you know? How do you know your spirit dwells in you? You can't see it, can't feel it, can't touch it. But you don't have any doubt it's there, do you? I want to return to our initial chart and just remind you, there are three positions that can be taken on the indwelling, that are normally taken on the indwelling, uh, separate and apart from the Word, and I believe only through the Word is a reactionary part of that. And I think well-intentioned, by the way. Brethren, trying to to eliminate or or, or to to answer uh, or uh, short-circuit or shortcut Arguments that are often made by those who misunderstand the work of the Holy Spirit today and claim to do miraculous manifestations. But I believe that both of these are extremes. And so let me just, you know, read the center one again because I think this is the one we've been able to show is supported by Scripture and then the lesson will be yours. This view holds that it is through the word of God, the gospel of Christ, that one is convicted of sin and converted to Christ. However, it is the spirit of God that is working in this process to save and transform the Christian. We mentioned Titus 3, verse 5. One is saved by obeying the commandments of God revealed in his word. And it is from the word of God that we learn that the spirit indwells our bodies. Without the Word of God, there would be no indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer, and without the revelation of Scripture, we would not even know that the Spirit dwells in us. I think that's a sustainable position from from the Scriptures, and I hope I've been able to show that. You've been so patient. Thank you for listening. The lesson's yours.